So today we're kicking off a new series about how God is betrayed, portrayed in the Old Testament. Now, does anybody enjoy reading the Old Testament? Oh, more people than I thought. That's good. That's good. Um, what's your favorite part to read in the Old Testament? Proverbs. Proverbs? Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon? Okay. There's always one person, right? How about you guys? What do you enjoy reading in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy, really? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. It feels very black and white, like. Yeah. Well, that's, I've never had anyone ever tell me they enjoy reading Deuteronomy. So, thank you. Anybody else? Ruth, okay, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Ruth is great. Ruth, yeah. Ruth is a great story. Um, that's good. A lot of times the New Testament isn't where we turn to when we really need encouraged. Sometimes it is scary, especially if you're new to the Bible. And a lot of times if I'm seeking the presence of God, my first tendency is not to flip open the Old Testament, right? My, my tendency is um, to go to the New Testament. Now, I believe that the Old Testament's important, right? We believe that because it's in this book. We know this book is important. But it's often full of weird-sounding names. Like, just start reading some passage in the Old Testament. You're like, what did they name people back then? These names are crazy. I'm always like, hey, Darvis, when we adopt, how about this name Abinajab or something? And she's like, no, do not pick that name. It's full of confusing stories, right? And we're like, what is going on? Why is this recorded? Why is this in here? It's full of long, boring sections of rules, you know? You're blessed, you're cursed. Um, and at least on the surface level, many times it seems to be filled with a less than flattering portrait of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. The way God is revealed in the Old Testament is sometimes seems problematic to us as modern Westerners. Now, the Old Testament is filled with these stories that give us little snapshots about who God is and what he is like. Now, any of these stories in isolation is incomplete. None of them give us a full picture, but all together they're designed to give us lots of little snapshots that when we put them together reveal a full, robust picture of who God is and what he is like. Sometimes someone will come to me with one passage from the Old Testament and they'll be like, look at God here. And I'm like, yeah, but you've got to look at all the pictures together. This one snapshot doesn't give you the full picture of who he is. Um, pointillism, pointillism is a art form. Darbs and I went down to the Philadelphia Museum of Art for the first time. Been here almost eight years, and we finally did it. We finally went. Yeah, it's about time, right? It's amazing. But pointillism is a art form where you use lots of little small images. Sometimes you'll see people use photographs. Sometimes you'll see them use dots. But when they're viewed together, it makes a different, complete picture. I think when we take all the pictures of God in the Old Testament together, it reveals Jesus. All these little snapshots. If you just take one by itself, you're like, what is that? Who is that? But all together, it reveals Jesus. When people start reading the Bible, they read about Jesus eating with sinners, standing up to religious people, and defying customs and norms, and they're like, Jesus is awesome. Like, 
Very few people read that and they're like, man, I don't know. He doesn't seem that great. Like, most people read that and they're like, Jesus is great. But when they begin to read the Old Testament, they encounter his father, who seems a lot harder to stomach. He often seems angry. He's demanding blood sacrifices. He gives permission to wipe out people and towns. And I've seen so many people approach this book and they say, I really like Jesus. I don't really like God the Father. And I want us to be able to walk away from this series and recognize that they're one and the same, and that we need to see the whole Old Testament as a complete picture. Sometimes it feels like when we're reading the New Testament that we're watching Golden Girls, right? It's a bunch of friends going on a trip together and building deeper relationships. And I mean, Peter is such a rose. Like, Rose was always saying the dumbest stuff. If you read Peter, he's always, like, saying stuff, and you can just see Jesus, like, oh, Peter. You know, like, they're always like, oh, Rose. Um, But when you read the Old Testament, it does not feel like Golden Girls. It feels like Game of Thrones. You're like, there's giant snakes, there's giants, there's people getting sacrificed, there's incest and rape and war. You're like, what is this? Why do we give this book to kids? This is crazy. But Jesus tells his disciples... That he is the clearest picture of what God is like. And sometimes it feels like whiplash. When we read about Jesus in the New Testament feeding 5,000, and God in the Old Testament destroying 5,000. But Jesus says he's the clearest picture of who God is and what he is like. And so I hope over the next few weeks as we look at these stories in the Old Testament, we look at some of these problematic passages that people find challenging, that you find a clearer sense of who God is and who God isn't, and you find a deeper, more robust faith in Jesus. Now, some secular scholars have suggested the issue, the reason that we have such a divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God's completely made up, and the Jewish people started like most people with really angry gods because they were angry people, and as they mature as a people and civilization, their God begins to soften. They change what their made-up God is like. Now, that's a reasonable explanation, but I don't think it's a right explanation. If it's the right one, we're all wasting our time here, right? If they just made up God and they were like, you know what, I think he should be nice now, and they just started, they're like, we can change him because we made him up then everything we're doing is a waste. I don't think that's the answer that we're looking for. Now, some theologians have tried to clarify the tension between the God in the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament by saying that, yes, God the Father is angry. He's an angry God. But killing his son abated his anger. Like, I'm so angry! And then you accidentally kill your son, and you're like, oh, man, I should probably deal with my anger. That's kind of how they describe him, some theologians. The problem is, this makes God's base characteristic anger instead of love. God is love, not anger. That's what 1 John 4, 8 says. One of the apostles, the followers of Jesus, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John, after spending a lifetime practicing the ways of Jesus, having spent time with Jesus, having seen God revealed in Jesus, he says, you know what? At its core, if you want to know the core characteristic of God, it's love. It's not anger. Any theology that starts from a place that says that God is anger is going to go askew. Once again, this creates an explanation for the difference between the Old and New Testament, but I don't think it's the right one. If it is the right one, it means that we're going to spend eternity with an angry God who is only letting us in and loving us because he beat his son enough to get the anger out of his system. 
that isn't a person I want to spend eternity with. Even if he is the only God. Like, that doesn't sound like a nice person to live with. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the tension points between God's portrayal in the Old Testament and talk about how to find harmony with God's portrayal in Jesus in the New Testament. I think that there's better answers than these that have sometimes been submitted as a way to find harmony between these two. How can we find harmony between the two perspectives without making everything we believe and practice a waste? Now, you might be saying, why does it even matter? I'll just read the New Testament. I'll just ignore the Old Testament. Like, I don't care. Like, why are we even talking about this? Um, A.W. Tozer has a great quote, and this is why I think it's important that we talk about this. Listen to this quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about when I say the word God is the most important thing about you. And here's why. He says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself and what we in our deepest heart imagine God to be like. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Whatever you think God is like, that is what you become like. That's what A.W. Tozer is saying. Remember the first time I heard this quote? It was a few years after college, and it wrecked me. And I began to go on this journey because I realized if I have incomplete or inaccurate views of God, I will become an angry, bitter, selfish, stubborn person. If I don't have a right view of what God is like, I'm going to be transformed into someone who does not look and act like the one true God. Some of us are angry people because we think God is angry. We're angry because we think God is angry at us, or we're angry at some people because we assume God is angry at those people. What we think about when we say God matters. It affects who we become. Today, though, we're going to start our discussion about how God is portrayed in the Old Testament by looking at the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. This is the most repeated verse in the Bible. Does anyone know it? Does anyone know what the most quoted verse by the Bible is? John 3.16 is the most quoted verse in Western culture. But what verse does the Bible actually repeat the most, that it quotes within itself the most? Oh, that's close. It's Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It's repeated dozens of times in the Old and New Testament. Sometimes they just take part of it. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says, And he, that is God, passed in front of Moses, and this is what he declared. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. I'm slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. I punish the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. God and Moses have this encounter, and Yahweh, the name of God, he reveals himself to Moses. And this is what he says about himself. And over and over again in the Bible, the biblical authors go back to this and say, this is the touchstone of who God is and what he is like. But you probably noticed it, right, when I read this passage? There's a tension in this verse. Did you notice? Like, verse 6 is great. 
Like, God is abounding in love, compassion, and mercy. He forgives people. He's great, right? But then we get to verse 7, and we're like, oh, I'm less excited about this. He promises, if you're guilty, I will not let you off the hook. I'm going to find you. You will not go unpunished. Um, there's definitely a tension here, much like the tension we feel between the Old and New Testament. So let's talk about the, the, the part that's more difficult for us to stomach first. As modern, progressive Westerners, we're uncomfortable with any kind of punishment or violence. Like, in our society, it's just weird to see any kind of violence. Like, we'll watch it on TV, but to actually live through it, we're like, it makes us very uncomfortable. The slap at the Oscars, it dominated every news source for, like, days, right? It's all they could talk about. I'm like, what a small thing to, you know, be obsessed over. But our culture is like, any act of violence or punishment just feels wrong. But we have to remember something. This passage wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but who was it written to? Jewish people, ancient Jewish people. It was written to people who had just escaped slavery. The original audience was ancient Israelites, a powerless Newly freed from slavery people who had no weapons had little money. They had no cities. They didn't have a country They had nothing they were roaming nomads who had just left everything that they knew and it was familiar in Egypt And so when these Israelites read about God's wrath, they weren't like hmm. That's not politically correct How dare you be wrathful, you know, that's not how they read it they didn't cringe like we tend to do when we hear about God's wrath. They rejoiced because God's wrath to them meant that he was bringing justice. He was promising that the oppressor would be held responsible and the oppressed would be set free. In the context of a people just freed from slavery, God's wrath was a good thing. It was like, oh yeah, you're going to protect us against those who would enslave us, ensnare us, and destroy us. And love demands that God acts what do people say all the time when they're like if god is loving how come this happens they always point to something and say god must not be loving because he's not dealing with this and yet when god acts to protect those he loves what we say well you seem awful angry and vengeful we like he can't win right no matter what he does love demands that people act when the people they love are being hurt that's what love demands if someone i hurt or someone I love is being hurt. I need to act. Love demands it. We often fear the wrath of God because as affluent Westerners, we're not oppressed. We're not like ancient Israelites just leaving slavery with nothing. Sometimes we need to fear the wrath of God because even though we're not oppressed, sometimes we are the oppressors. If the idea of God's wrath gives you PTSD to the churches protesting on the street, or to some pastor who would scream from the pulpit, um, you know, or somebody with a bullhorn or protesters, someone shouting about sin. Replace the word with justice because that's much closer to the idea of what God is doing. God's saying, those who take advantage of the weak and powerless, I'm going to hold accountable. The people on Wall Street who are uh, robbing people of their money and they're working all the systems and they never get caught and they keep getting their offshore bank accounts richer and richer by destroying people's um, 401ks and their retirements and taking advantage of people and they're like, no one will ever catch me, I'm getting away with it. God says, 
I am a just God, and I will not let the guilty go unpunished. And at this point, you might be like, okay, awesome, Alex. I'm okay with that. That explanation of God's wrath, I'm okay with. I can deal with that. But what about the next part? Did you catch it? He says, oh, also, I'm going to punish their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm going to punish the children for the sins of their parents up to four generations later. And we're like, that doesn't seem fair, God. Those people didn't do anything wrong. Like, why are you punishing them? Doesn't that feel unfair? Let's be honest. It feels unfair. As modern Westerners reading this, we're like, wow, that's an awful unfair position to take. Now, scholars disagree, disagree about what God is trying to convey here. Now, some argue that in ancient, um, ancient scriptures, ancient documents, we often find that in the ancient Near East, people would make these drastic um, comparison and contrast statements. He's saying, I'm going to love thousands. That's what he says here in verse, uh, at the beginning of verse 7. But I'm going to punish to the fourth and fifth generation. So some scholars are saying, well, look, he's making a very, um, he's making a very dramatic statement to drive home the fact that he is much more forgiving than he is punishing. He's going to love for a thousand generations those who love him. And he's going to only punish for four or five generations those who disobey him, those who hate him, those who harm those that he loves. That's, that's one explanation. That's possible. Others suggest that God is speaking about the nature of humans to pass their flaws on to their children. And science tells us this, right? If your father was an alcoholic, guess what? You have a lot more likelihood of becoming an alcoholic. If you're, you came from a family that was verbally abusive, guess what? In moments of stress and anger, you're going to be verbally abusive probably, right? That's what you were raised by. You find yourself as you age repeating the mistakes of the parents who raised you. Have you seen those completely terrible commercials? And they're like, homeowner's assurance have now made people like their parents. You know, I don't even remember what the commercial is. But it's like terrible. Every time it comes on, I'm like, I hate this commercial. Because we all are like, I don't want to become like my parents. They're, they're old, right? You know, they're into the different stuff. And then what I find is as I age, as I'm getting closer to 40, I'm like, I'm becoming my dad. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm dressing like him. I'm acting like him. I'm like, how do I make this stop, right? But not only do you pick up the good things that you see your parents doing, but you tend to pick up the mistakes of your parents who raised you as well. Others suggest that in the centralized families of the ancient world, God saw families as responsible for their sins, not just of their present, but of their past. Now, it's very different today because we all don't live under one house, right? When you get to a certain age, you move out. I remember when I got my first apartment and I moved out and I moved across the city to the other side of the city. Um, in the ancient world, the children continued to live in their house, and as they had children, they continued to live in their parents' house, and the house just got bigger and bigger. And so when there was a sin in the family, it was a family responsibility to address it and deal with it. Not just the sins of the present, but the sins of the past. Some scholars see this as, uh, as a evidence that he felt that his people should work to correct their wrongdoings but also the wrongdoings of their ancestors. Even though they may not have abused the people, perhaps they enjoyed the wealth of their father who had cheated and manipulated people to get ahead. In our individualistic society today, this may seem unfair, but in Eastern society, the individual bore responsibility to the community 
and bore a responsibility to the family and to the family legacy. And this isn't an idea that just disappears in the New Testament either in Romans 15.1. Uh, Paul says, Now we who are strong ought to, ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Most of the time we're like, I'm just going to deal with me. I'm going to keep me right, you know. And Paul's like, no, no, no. You're all in this together. You're way more connected than you thought. In Philippians 2.4, he says, Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in the needs of others too. So very much our Western society has said, just focus on you, make sure you're right, don't worry about anybody else. And Paul's saying, yeah, you have a responsibility to the people around you and the people who came before and the people who are going to come after. Okay, so now let's get back to the part of the verse that we like, the part of the verse that we can stomach a little bit more easily. How does God the Father, how does he describe himself? Think about this. This is God writing his profile. You know, like if you're on a social media app, you're on a dating app, you write your profile description. This is how God describes himself. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the description that when the New Testament authors saw Jesus, they were like, he's the embodiment of God. This is exactly what I expected God to look at look like I want to read just a few of those statements again And I want you to just think about how God describes himself I want you to just think about him in your mind as I read this God sees your pain He knows where you are hurting He's not ignoring it He's not above it He's with you in it He's compassionate God gives good gifts when we deserve none he hides good things in our lives, so we'll be delighted when we find them. God is gracious. God is not easily angered. He doesn't lose it at every little mistake. He's a safe person to be around. God is slow to anger. God is full of love and faithfulness. He overflows with love. Everything he does is an overflow of the love that exists in the unity of the Trinity, the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He's loyal. He will never break an oath. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. God loves you so much, he's going to love your descendants because they bear your DNA. He's going to show them favor because of the relationship he had with you. You are experiencing the favor of God today because of the love he had for those who came before you. God maintains love for thousands. God is forgiving. He doesn't hold a grudge. He understands what it is like to be human. He knows that it is hard. He doesn't excuse sin, but he knows sin kills joy and corrupts love, so he's working hard to eliminate it from your life. God forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And finally, God is just. He will hold the oppressor, the oppressor with the overpriced lawyer who escapes all the charges and thinks he gets away with it, he will hold him accountable. He will avenge the oppressed. He will set things right. God will not let the guilty escape. Is that your vision of God? If I'm honest, many times I have a low view of God. I have a caricature that's been painted by Western American culture, and it doesn't always look like this. I often find myself blaming God for things he said he would not do, 
and shouting at him for not doing things he never said he would. A.W. Tozer again said, A low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on all our present troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. Devout Jews in ancient times and even Orthodox Jews today will start and end every day by reciting the Shema prayer. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And they say that every morning when they wake and every night before they sleep. And it was designed as a way to remind them of who God was and who God wasn't. As they were surrounded by uh, uh, polytheistic cultures, it was a way to remind them that they served one God. It was a way to reset and start each day, remembering who God is and what he was about. My hope is that over the next few weeks, we'll look at these, these tense and sometimes problematic passages in the Old Testament, and we will begin to see Jesus more and more clearly. But I hope we will also begin to see God with more and more reverence and respect, and that we will have a clearer sense of who he is and who he isn't. And so I'm going to end today with a prayer, and I hope it's a prayer like, like the Shema prayer that we will begin to say every morning and evening to remind ourselves about who God is and what he's like. I'm going to put this prayer up on our social media pages, and I just want to encourage you, pray it every morning and every evening. Yahweh, my God, he is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he brings justice to the oppressed and ruin to the oppressor and his household. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to have a clear picture of who you are. Forgive us for so often creating a caricature of you, a version of you that is not real, that is an idol, a version of you that paints you as a villain rather than as the hero of our story and all stories. Jesus, I pray that this series is a reset for me, that I get a renewed respect and reverence for your name, for your character, and your nature. God, I pray that your spirit will just draw out in us when we hear something and we're like, that's not who our God is like. That we'll just recognize the things that are lies about your character and nature. And that we'll be drawn to representations that give us a true sense of what you're like. You are a loving, kind, compassionate, gracious, merciful, forgiving sins and iniquity and wickedness. And we know you're a God who goes and fights for us. 